underdog. A competitor thought to have little chance of winning a fight or a contest. A person who seems beat down, overwhelmed, and outmatched, facing impossible odds. Someone in prime position for an upset. The Celtics turn in one of the great comebacks in NBA playoff history. Well, one of my favorite underdog stories is the story of Rudy Rudiger. And if you don't know this guy's story, he had this dream and this idea that one day he wanted to attend the University of Notre Dame and he wanted to play for the Fighting Irish. But he had some obstacles in his life because he wasn't a very good student and he didn't come from a family that had a lot of money. Now, he did have a lot of heart. In fact, he was a high school football player and man, he was like an animal on the field. But he was really short. He was only five foot six and 165 pounds, which is probably why I like him so much. <laughs> he did make all that up with a lot of heart. And sure enough, after he graduated from high school, he kind of floundered around a little while until the death of his best friend. And it was that event that was a catalyst for Rudy to decide that he was going to try to pursue his dream at Notre Dame. And so sure enough, he goes to Notre Dame and he realizes that he can't actually get into the school because his grades are so bad. So he decides to go to a junior college right down the street and it's there that they realize that Rudy had dyslexia. So all those years he was in high school, he was untreated for the disease. And so he got the help that he needed and he got his grades to get better and better. Well, he applied to Notre Dame four times. And finally, on the fourth attempt, he actually got accepted, and he got to live his dream. He tried out for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team, but he didn't actually make the team. He made the practice squad. So every week, he'd have to go out and play football, and he was just a tackling dummy. I mean, they ran all of the opposing team's plays, and they never really got any play time. But Rudy went out there every single week with heart. Though he was little, he was mighty. And all the coaches and all the players noticed that there was something different about this guy. In fact, some of the different players realized just how much heart that Rudy had. And they realized that he was never going to get a chance to really play on the team. That was until the very last game of the, his year at Notre Dame. Where those players went before the coach and they said, hey, we think Rudy should have the opportunity to play. And so those players stepped up on Rudy's behalf and sure enough, Rudy got to dress out for that last game. Here is him on the sidelines. So he goes to that last game, right? But he's not officially a Notre Dame football team player because he's never actually been in a game. Because officially, you're not actually on the roster until you actually play in the game. And the whole game was going great, but Rudy never got a chance to go in. That was until the final 27 seconds of the game. It was in those 27 seconds that they sent Rudy Rudiger onto the field. And he went out for three plays. Did a kickoff return and then another play. And then on the final play, Rudy, as a defender, got around his man and he sacked the quarterback. The team was so excited that they picked him up and they carried him off the field. 
He was the first player in all of Notre Dame's history to be carried off the field, and he will be remembered for all of history. Now, there were some great players that went to Notre Dame. I mean, I think of Joe Montana. I think of Jerome Bettis. I think of Jim Brown. Not many people remember Rudy Rudiger. But why is it that we love this story so much? We love it because Rudy was an underdog. In fact, they made a feature film all about the 27 seconds that this guy played in football. And that's those underdog stories that we love, don't we? It's the stories of people who overcame just these huge obstacles. And we've been learning all about these underdogs in the Bible over the past few weeks. And it's been incredible. Every week that we've gotten to hear the messages, man, I have been amazed at uh, the obstacles that all these different people overcame. And today, I want to share a lesser-known story from the Bible. And it's it's a story from the Bible that's much like Rudy's. It only lasts for about 27 seconds. It's one that goes by a little bit quick, but it's one of my favorite underdog stories. And it's one that you don't very often hear at church. Man, I would be surprised if you've ever heard this story in church before, because this story is a really difficult one. And the reason why it's difficult is because this guy has a terribly hard name to pronounce. In fact, I have been like practicing this name for over a month. And every time I try to say it, I I say it a little bit different. So I apologize in advance. But the underdog that we're going to learn about today has the name Mephibosheth. Yeah, say that fast. It's a hard name, okay? Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is an an incredible character in the Bible. He's a lesser-known character, but what we're going to find is that he's like the comeback kid in all of Scripture. He overcomes his own circumstances, his own disability, and so much more. And we find that this story is buried all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And let me give you some background to this passage of Scripture because at this time, we're going to learn a little bit about David. Now, David was the guy who killed Goliath. He wrote many of the songs that we have in the Bible. And at this time, he has become the king. And after becoming the king, there was about 15 years where he established himself as the king and God gave them peace. And it was during that time of peace that David remembers a promise that he made. And this is where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse number 1. Here's what it says. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, David had a best friend named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David were like kindred spirits. They were warriors together. And they were best friends. They always had one another's back. And Jonathan was actually the son of King Saul. And King Saul hated David. He was looking for opportunities to kill David around every corner. But Jonathan, who was best friends with David, he always stood up for him. And in fact, he made a covenant with David, a promise with David that said, I'm going to always protect you. And after he made that promise to David, he asked for something in return. And we find what he asked in return in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse number 14. Here's what it says. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I, uh, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face 
of the earth. And so here, Jonathan asks for David to do something for him. He says, David, when I'm gone, when I die, would you please show my family kindness? Would you do something that they don't deserve? Would you show them kindness? Because God has given all of us so much kindness. And it was that promise that David remembered. This word for kindness in scripture is the word chesed. <laughs> it's so weird. It's a Hebrew word. And you have to use it with like the heavy guttural. So if you're not spraying with the pronunciation of this, you're not doing this right. It's not chest, okay? It's not chest. It's chesed, okay? And this idea of chesed is a Hebrew word that's hard for us to understand in our language. People have tried to interpret it a number of different ways, but it was meant to reflect the kindness of God. It was meant to reflect his own character, and probably the best ways that we can translate it is something like mercy, love, or undeserved favor, meaning grace. So David, after the years where his, his kingdom is established, he's thinking back to that promise that he had made to Jonathan. Now, during this time, Jonathan and his father, Saul, had died on Mount Gilboa, and they were gone from the picture. And it was at that time that he's thinking through, is there anybody left in Saul's house? Is there anybody left that I can show kindness to? You see, years before this, the last remaining son of Saul, who was the king, had been overthrown by his own people because they loved David so very much. Now, typically, the king wouldn't want to extend kindness to the other relatives. In fact, usually when the king stepped out during this time, they would want to off every rival that would come up. And you thought our politics were bad. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. We're talking Game of Thrones. We're going to get rid of that next guy who's coming up. We're talking about like a mafia hit job where they pull the person in and they toss them into the deep. That's what's going on during this time. They wanted to get rid of every other rival. The idea of showing them kindness is something that's so different. But that's exactly what David wanted to do because of his relationship with Jonathan and that promise that he made. He wanted to show that same kindness that God had given all of us. And then it says in verse number two in this passage, it says, now... There was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. And so Ziba, who used to be one of Saul's servants, comes before David. And David asks him the question, is there, is there anybody left in all of Saul's household that I can show that same kindness to? And Ziba says, well, there is actually one guy, but he's not the kind of guy that the king would want to hang out with. In fact, he's lame. He's disabled. He can no longer walk again. And so I don't think that the king would really want to associate with somebody like that. Let's remember, back in the Old Testament times, if you had a disease or you couldn't walk or you were blind, they thought that there was something wrong with you. They thought that you had sinned against God and that was a part of your punishment. 
Remember in the Bible that the disciples come before Jesus and they ask him, who sinned in this man's life that he would be born blind? See, that's what they thought. They thought that your physical ailments were as a, was a result of a great life of sin. Maybe you or your parents or someone else. But what we're going to find is that this guy's ailment wasn't a result of his own decision. It was just a circumstance. In fact, when Mephibosheth was only five years old and his father Jonathan died, he was living in the palace. I mean, he was living the life as a five-year-old. He would have had whatever he wanted. He would have been a son of like his grandfather was the king and life would have been really good. But all of a sudden, his dad Jonathan dies. And in haste, because of all the family members who died, his nurse grabbed him very quickly and she ran off with this little child. And we pick up in his story is in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse number 4. Here's what it says. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and he became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. See, Mephibosheth in a hurry was taken out of the palace. And as his nurse was carrying him, something happened. He fell and he broke both of his feet. And because they didn't have access to medical care and all the different things, Mephibosheth never walked again. It wasn't as a result of something that he did. It was just his circumstances. And they gave him the name Mephibosheth, which means out of the mouth of shame. Now, I don't know why Bible characters called people shameful or hairy or grabber like they did with their names. But usually what they were trying to do is they were trying to communicate the story of what happened in this person's life. And for Mephibosheth, they were saying that his life is out of the mouth of shame. He's so shameful, all the different things that happened to him. And in this situation, David looked at this guy who was disabled, and he wanted to show him kindness. That's what the story goes on to say. Here's what it says in verse uh, number four. It says, where is he? The king answered. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. And so David figures out where this guy is at. Ziba says he's at, out in Lodabar, which basically in Hebrew means that he is outside of the pasture. He is so far away. He is an outcast at this point in his life. At one time he lived in the palace, but now he is just thrown out. He is so far away. He's just that shameful. David says, bring him here. Now imagine you're Mephibosheth, okay? And you are getting summoned to the king. And you know the history, right? You know what happens when an older family member gets brought before the king. Mephibosheth is probably thinking, this is my last day on earth. I'm going to eat all my favorite snacks. I'm probably going to have Kentucky Fried Chicken. I I'm going to write my will. I'm going to say sorry for all the wrong things that I've ever done in my life. Mephibosheth is thinking, I am a dead man walking at this point. And so he goes before King David. 
But David doesn't want to hurt him. David wants to show him that kindness that God has given all of us. And that's what we see in the passage. In verse number six, it says this. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. David says, don't be afraid. That's what David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth comes before David, and he's thinking, this is my last day. I'm going to bow down low and hoping for something to happen here. And David looks at him, and he says, Mephibosheth. And notice, there's an exclamation point there. David is excited to see this guy. He says, Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because I want to show you kindness for the sake of that promise that I made your father, Jonathan. And not only do I want to show you kindness, here's the way that I'm going to do it. Mephibosheth is terrified at this point. He's wondering what's going to happen next. But David does something crazy. He says, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you back all those lands that your grandfather, all the land that your father owned. What's he saying there? He's saying, Mephibosheth, you just won the lottery, okay? You have just gotten all this great wealth because during this time, land meant everything. It was the way that you could provide for yourself and you could provide for your family and generations afterwards. It was through land that you got food and you could sell that to other people. He was giving him exceptional wealth. Then what I love about this story is that King David, when he calls him forward, he doesn't even notice Mephibosheth's disability doesn't even talk about it. And he says to this guy, Mephibosheth, come. I want you now to eat at my table. What's David saying? He's saying, Mephibosheth, I want a relationship with you. Everybody else has pushed you out. And you have lived as an outsider for so long. But he's saying, I want a relationship with you. I want you to come to sit at my table. And King David's table was an exclusive bunch of people. I mean, this is where you wanted to be. This is where all the best of the best sat. David inviting him in was saying, man, I want a relationship with you. And that meant so much more to Mephibosheth because he had lived his life as an outcast. And now this moment was where all of that was being restored. And in this moment, Mephibosheth is shook. He's so overwhelmed by what just happened, that the Bible goes on to say this. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth looks at David and he says, why? Why me? Why? Why would you show kindness to me? He's sitting in that moment and he can't understand why David would want to do this, why he would get this grace. He doesn't feel worthy. And he says, I am nothing but a dead dog. He's saying, I am the ultimate underdog in all of the Bible here in this moment. He's saying, I'm nothing but a dead dog. Now, dogs in our culture are a little bit different than in Bible times. Because nowadays, people treat their dog like it's their second or third or fourth child. 
I mean, they take it to the groomer. You know, they take pictures with it and post it on social media. I mean, man, they go overboard with their dog. They spend gourds of amount of money on their dogs, which is why I do not have a dog because I'm way too cheap, okay? But people go crazy with their dogs. But back in Bible times, man, a dog wasn't something that you brought around your house. I mean, usually dogs were wild, and they were often malnourished, and it was oftentimes that you would be going down the road, and you would see a dead dog by the side of the road. Mephibosheth, overwhelmed by this situation, he says, I am nothing but a dead dog. Why? Why would you ever notice me? But David wanted to give Mephibosheth this grace, this undeserved favor. He wanted to bring him in near. And as the story goes on in verse number nine, it says, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may provide it for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that an incredible story? I mean, that's amazing. Here is this guy who thought that he was at death's door that was restored. God gave him this grace, this undeserved favor through David. And I love it because he says that now Mephibosheth is treated like one of the king's sons. No longer was he an outsider. No longer was he that disabled guy in the corner. He was elevated to the king's table, and now he was treated as a son or a daughter of the most high king. Isn't that amazing? What I love, though, about Mephibosheth's story is that it's our story as well. See, because at one time, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, at one time, we are all lost and broken. Every single one of us have been lost and broken at a certain time. This is our life before we knew God. We all feel like the world is against us. We feel unhappy. We feel disconnected from other people, just wandering around in relationships. It may be that we feel hopeless. We may hold on to every second like it's our last, and we have to savor that moment. When we're lost and we're broken, we live in fear of death and dread for what might happen to me when I die. And that's exactly where Mephibosheth was. He was holding on to every single day. He was thinking, oh man, I am lost and I am lonely. And so many people live their life that same way, where they feel disconnected from God. They feel like an outsider. But what I love is that God extends his kindness and his grace God extends his kindness and his grace to all of us. See, he reached down to us when we were lost, when we were broken, when we were disconnected from him. He said, enough is enough. 
And he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, down in this earth to die a horrific death on the cross. And Jesus lived a perfect life. But Jesus suffered immensely on the cross for you and for me. And he did it so that he could pay for every wrong thing that we've ever done so that we could be forgiven. So that we could have a relationship with God here in this life. And we could also be in heaven forever with him. You see, God extends this kindness and this grace. I love what John chapter 1 verse 12 says. It says, yet to those who received him, those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's what he did for us. He brought us near and he gave us a new identity. We could be forgiven of all the wrong things. We could be sons and daughters of the most high king. And what I also love about Mephibosheth's story and our story as well is that God invites us to come to the table. See, he wants us at the table with him. What does that mean? It means that the God of the universe wants a relationship with you and me. He wants us to know him. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to talk with him. He wants us to sit at his table. And I believe that. I believe up in heaven that there's this big, huge table. There's all these chairs. And God has our names on those chairs. And he is waiting for people to come to him. He is waiting for people to accept him. He is waiting for people to believe in him. And he offers that to everyone. You see, God can take our mess and he can turn it into a message. That's what God does. He can take all the broken parts of our lives and he can put it back together so we can share that same hope with others. And that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to hoard that message for ourselves. I grew up in a family of hoarders. Like when we were kids, we would hoard everything that we had. Whether it was like a video game system or whether it was toys, we wanted it all for ourselves. This was seen all the time when we sat down at the dinner table because we wanted like the biggest piece of food. We wanted the biggest piece of pizza or the biggest piece of chicken. We always hoarded things for ourselves. And sometimes I think we do the same thing with the good news of Jesus Christ. See, all of us have been given, us, given a spot at this table. And we should be sharing that good news with others. We should share that with our friends. We should share that with our neighbors. We should share that with our coworkers. We should share that with our families. Because of what God's done in our life. That there's room at this table for everyone. I have to tell you though, family is probably the hardest ones to share with. See, because I grew up in a family where my mom had grown up in a Christian home, but my dad did not. And one of his biggest prayers for as long as he lived was that his family would come to know Jesus. Because my dad gave his life to Christ when I was about seven years old, and it dramatically changed his life. And so from then on, he prayed for his brothers and his sisters, as well as just all the other family members who didn't know Jesus Christ. My dad died 12 years ago. Until the day he died, he always prayed. Which is why I was so surprised about something that happened just a couple months ago. I was sitting in my office one day, and I got this text from my aunt. 
And she said, Andrew, I heard that you're coming to California. And she said, when you come to California, I want you to baptize my kids. And at first I was like, want to baptize my kids because this is an aunt that didn't go to church. I mean, she had gone to church a long time before, but she wasn't really active in the church at all. So sure enough, I texted her back and I said, hey, Aunt Marilyn, man, I, I'm so excited that you, you want your kids to get baptized. Like, man, I'd be happy to have a conversation with them about who Jesus is and to baptize them in the ocean or in your pool or something else. Then I got a text back from my aunt that said, I was actually thinking that you would just sprinkle them. <laughs> Obviously, my aunt didn't know the type of church that I go to and what we believe about baptism. So I texted her back and I said, Aunt Marilyn, let, let me just call you and talk to you. So I called up my aunt. I said, Aunt Marilyn, like, what's going on? Did you, did you want me to baptize your, your grandchildren or something else? And she said, no. I want you to baptize my own children. Those were all my cousins who are about my age and older. She said, not only them, but there's, there's one of my grandsons that I'd like to see baptized too. And I said, Aunt Marilyn, what, what's going on? She said, Andrew, I, I really want them to go to heaven. And I've been thinking because of the coronavirus and everything else about this, and I really want them to understand who Jesus is. And I'm like, this is that open door that we've been waiting for. And so I said, Aunt Marilyn, I am happy to have that conversation about Jesus. And man, if they are ready, I would be honored to baptize them. So a couple months ago, I went back to California. And all of my dad's family gathered together on the beach. And when they were on that beach, it gets better. When they were on that beach... I had the opportunity to share about Jesus and what Jesus Christ did on the cross for every one of us, how we were disconnected from God, but he died to take away every wrong thing that we've ever done. I explained to them the way that you commit your life to Christ is by admitting that you're a sinner, believing in Jesus, and then committing your life to him. After I said that, we prayed the prayer that we pray in leading a person to Jesus. And then I walked into the water and I said if anybody is ready to get baptized you can come down here in the water with me and one by one my cousins began to come in the water first my youngest cousin and then my little niece came into the water then my three older cousins and finally my nephew got baptized and that day six of my family members got baptized on that beach After I was done, I was talking to my sister. And she said, Andrew, it's so crazy that this happened at Seal Beach down by the pier. And I said to my sister, Carrie, well, well, why is that? She said, because after dad retired from being a firefighter, every weekday he would ride his bike down to this pier and he'd pray for his family to come to know Jesus Christ. See, folks, only God can write a story like that one. And we still got lots of family members who aren't there yet. But we're praying for them. We're praying that they would come to the table. We're praying that God would change their heart. 
because this invitation is available to anyone, to all the broken, to all those who are hurting, all the prodigals, all the sinners, all the saints. We are all welcomed to come to him. The question is, will you accept his invitation? Will you allow him to change your life on the inside? Will you put off that invitation because you think I'm too far gone? I could never be forgiven for all the wrong things that I've ever done. Are you in that place of shame like Mephibosheth was in? Because if you are, my hope and my prayer is that today would be the day that you get right with Jesus Christ. You see, there's an invitation, folks, to come to the table. And I pray today that you would accept his invitation. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to die in my place. Father, when I was broken, when I was lost, Lord, you came down and you extended your grace and your kindness. Father, thank you for what you did and thank you for the invitation that you give to all of us to come to your table. I pray, Father, for the ones who may not know you today, that today might be that day that they come to your table. That today might be that day that they accept the grace that you offer to every single one of us through your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that today they would get right with you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.